0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to tonight's Commonwealth Club program in partnership with World Affairs. My name is Radiance Chapman, head of marketing for Jackson Square Partners, an investment firm based here in San Francisco. And we're delighted to be sponsoring tonight's Commonwealth Club program. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. Mauro Guillen is the author of The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. An expert on global market trends, Professor Guillen combines his training as a sociologist and business economist to methodically identify and quantify the most promising opportunities at the intersection of demographic, economic, and technological development. He's one of the most original thinkers at the Wharton School And currently serves as a professor of management and vice dean for the MBA for Executives program. Moderating tonight's program is Ray Suarez, host of KQEDs on Shifting Ground and author of the forthcoming book, We Are Home Becoming an American in the 21st Century. Please join me in welcoming Mauro Guillen and Ray Suarez.
1: Professor, good to see you. Welcome to San Francisco. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, Ray. Well, everybody is going to read your book, all of present company, and they will come across a phrase, the multi-generational revolution. And I think we ought to start there because really it's the cornerstone of the book. Explain to us
2: what it is. Well, um, I think in this country, especially in this country, in the United States, we're being obsessed with generations, and we're always looking for differences across generations. All of this, if you remember, started with uh, the comparison between the baby boomers and those who had gone through the uh, Great Depression and World War II. And obviously, the contrast there was very sharp. But since then, we have been emphasizing the differences across generations, always looking for something that would be different, as opposed to looking for the common ground. So the multigenerational um uh, revolution is all about overcoming those differences and thinking about what is it that we can do together but not only that how is it that we can live and work and uh, rest throughout our lives without compartmentalizing what we do at different ages so that's what i'm what i'm talking about in the book partially
1: out of exhaustion partially out of boredom partially to dismiss them uh, do you cringe a little bit when you hear the phrase okay
2: boomer <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> Uh, First of all, um, you know, we have this human tendency to categorize, to put people into little boxes, and we then forget about their individuality. So generational talk is stereotyping, and it can be about discrimination, it can be about, uh, you know, very negative, right? Uh, It's all about cliches, really. It's something that we invent and we keep on, you know, using without really realizing that uh, there's not that much evidence in favor of the fact that if people belonging to different generations are actually different. It's something that really baffles me. Except you're an economist. You know that
1: the size of generations, the impact they have when they do things en masse, is real. When uh, boomer generations moved into the workplace, that had an effect. The, mm-hmm. the economy had to create a lot of new positions. Yeah. For a suddenly larger workforce, um, home builders had to up their game to uh, meet the demand of newly created families, now expanding and having children. Suburbs had to strain their resources to build new elementary schools and high schools. Generational impact, both the generation on the economy, but also the economy on the generation. Is real and sometimes, as we'll find out with the
2: 08 09 recession, leaves scars. Oh, absolutely. So let me use a different term then for that concept that you just put on the table, which is age cohort, right? So the age cohort can be of different sizes because fertility shifts over time, right? So the baby boomer age cohort let's not talk uh, call it generation it was larger than others. That's why it was called the baby boomer, and that means, as you correctly said, of course, that the labor market will will change. Also, politics will change as we have uh, age cohorts of different sizes, but that's very different from arguing that people belonging or people who were born in a different time period are intrinsically different from other people, right? Because we call them baby boomers or we call them millennials or what have you. That's very different. But the expectations that they may
1: bring as a group of people shift based on what
2: the real landscape is like for them. Absolutely. I'm not denying that, but... What I am fighting against is this attribution that people who belong to a certain age group then behave in a particular way for the rest of their lives. That's what I don't think is good, because it's a generalization. And we're forgetting about the fact that all of these groups are made of individuals. Well, your book is a book to do battle
1: with, and one that you took me along with you through your argument. As someone who watches these numbers closely and has watched and been a reporter through the ups and downs of American history over the last several decades. I was right there with you, and then sometimes I was not so so sure. (laughs) Because there's a world that exists, and you very compellingly lay it out for us, in the data, in what really happens, what's measurable, not only in the United States, but in societies around the world. But then there's another world that lives between people's ears, And it's an almost different landscape where Mm -hmm. they're making conclusions based on sentiment and belief and received wisdom and not always based on reality. Mm -hmm. But yet they feel very strongly Mm -hmm. Uh, if you had spoken to, uh, let's say, anti-abortion people during the 90s and the 2010s and the 20 teens and told them abortion's been declining in the United States Mm -hmm. steadily for 40 years. Mm they wouldn't have believed you. No. During the years when teen birth was being described as a just a corrosive social phenomenon, teen birth in the United States was dropping like a rock. Mm-hmm. Yet those people who have a sort of interior landscape based on the belief that it's a rising threat, they're making voting decisions, they're making local civic decisions mm-hmm. based not on the reality of the charts you provide us in the book right. but this more complex almost alchemical mix
2: yeah no absolutely imp- but that's for two reasons uh, i think you would agree with me ray one is that uh, when we start believing that the situation is real although it is not then we act accordingly the other one of course is that politicians tend to exploit uh you know those things and they frame it in such a way that they can you know, then make uh, their policy proposals so they can, uh, you know, do w- with, the, with, the, with the data whatever they want. So it's the way in which you present and you frame the data that really matters in the end. There's no question about that. But the topic that you just mentioned, uh, teen mothers, you know, the trend is down. But we still have um, about uh, right now 16 million uh, American women who had a child uh, when they were teenagers. And only 2% of them graduated from college. Only 2%. Less than half of the states in the United States don't have any programs to help teenage mothers actually get a college degree. right? Less than half of the states. So that's a problem. It's still a problem. The trend is down, but it's still a problem. That's a policy challenge for
1: American education that it just simply chose not to meet, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with this book, you lay out a path forward, but one that might be very difficult to get to because many of the systems that you're describing are right now in the control of people who have very little interest in changing the status quo.
2: Well, change is always difficult, right? But you see, the environment is changing in ways that uh, we cannot really control. So one of them is uh, technological change, which is reshaping the labor market, reshaping jobs, is reshaping politics, everything. The other is the one that you alluded to, which is demographic change. We're having fewer babies, Right. And not only that, we also live in longer on average. Right. And we're staying healthy. That means in good mental and physical shape for a longer period of time. So those trends that are very long standing. Right. They've been going on for a while. Now they're reaching a critical phase and uh, that is transforming everything. If we don't change in the wake of those transformations, we're going to be out of whack. And the new economy is asking people to be more flexible. Right. Because technology changes so quickly. If individuals are not given the tools to be able to also change, then we're going to have a lot of people who don't fit right in the economy. That's, for me, the biggest problem. One of the big villains in your book is something you
1: call the sequential model of life. Explain what it is and
2: why it looks to you to be a real problem. Yeah. Well, it is a real problem because I think it's one of the uh, most uh, devastating tyrannies that we've had in the world. So the, the sequential model of life essentially tells us that when we're young, we should be playing very young. Uh, But then, you know, you should go to school and you better learn everything that you will need for the rest of your life, right? Because you're not going to have another chance of going back to school and then you work. But hey, maybe you don't like your job, but you're supposed to work as much as you can to save as much money as you can because the promised land, right, is retirement. That's the sequential model of life. You move from playing to studying or learning to working and then retiring. And that is completely at odds with this new flexible economy that we have now and with technological change that requires us to be lifelong learners and to be able to switch careers quite swiftly, right? But it's also really bad for women because that model was meant for men, was put in place for men like 120 years ago or so when we came up with universal schooling and with um, state pensions, right? And so it's an old model. It doesn't fit the new reality. And it makes it very hard for people who take the wrong turn in their lives or make the wrong decision to recover from that bad decision because you've missed a transition in life, right? So we need to move beyond that. The book is really a manifesto about that when you think about it.
1: But one thing that is also clear is that if you decide for yourself, you know, the sequential model of life, as Professor Jen points out, doesn't really work for me. So I'm going to raise my hand and volunteer to step out of that model. Yeah.
2: We don't have a very forgiving society if you decide to do Oh, that. absolutely not. And this is reflected in all of the movies like rebel without a cause and you know it permeates the the entire culture. But think about how things are changing though, Ray. So 40% of Americans who go into retirement eventually go back to either part-time or full-time job uh, work. That's 40%. And 53%, 53% of Americans who retire early do the same thing they go back to either part-time or full-time work so things are starting to change we're also seeing that you know about 30 percent of the american population now of all ages are engaged in some type of learning mostly online so we have 40 year olds we have 50 year olds we have 70 year olds who are learning something now with new technology Uh, some of them go back to actual university campuses but most of them use online learning things are changing and they're changing because they have to change because the economy now requires us to be so much more flexible
1: A lot of things have to change Mm -hmm. for us to not only break the tyranny of this sequential model, but actually build something new that fits the way people really live. That's a
2: big ask, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it won't be easy. But what we need is essentially two actors to realize that that sequential model of life is not working. So one is the government and the other one is companies. The government, because, well, the government employs a lot of people, but also because of the policies. And you see, the government, for the last hundred years, what it has been doing is classifying us into age groups. And then telling us, oh, you're 15, you should be in school. Or you're 25, you should be working and saving for retirement. You're 67, oh, you should be retiring. Uh, That's wrong, because that's not making it possible for people to actually adjust to this new reality. And then companies, well, you know, they discriminate by age. Uh, They have an employee who's 55 or 60 and they're thinking about ways to get rid of that employee. That's wrong. People at that age, they have a lot of experience and maybe they want to keep on working now that we live longer for another 20 years. Why not? So we need to change organizations and we need to change mindsets. I mean, we're still thinking in terms of this sequential way of uh, living our lives. And I think it's like um, um, completely obsolete by now.
1: One of the terrifying things about turning 60 for men in America is that once they lose the primary job that carried them through their 40s and 50s, -hmm. they have a terrible time finding another job, that next job won't last as long as they need it to, and their wages start to go down. That's right. And the benefits, and the job benefits also disappear. For women, it's a little different because they were, unfortunately, earning less throughout their tenure in the workforce, but they experienced less instability after 60 in comparison to men. But men who often build their identity and their sense of self-worth and their idea about where they fit in society based on what they do and what they've
2: done find that time in their life to be just terrifying. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, not everything is doomed here, right? I mean, we can always look for the negative things. Um, I actually, you know, I I would also like to send like a positive message, right? Which is that, you know, this model that I propose in the book, being a perennial, it's all about reinventing ourselves, right? It's finding meaning in what we do, uh, especially beyond a certain age. But it also has a message for very young people, right? Which is, hey, you're 18, don't think that you have to make up your mind as to what you want to be in life and you won't be able to change, right? I think uh, hopefully that will take off a lot of pressure from teenagers, right? So think about your life as a series of careers maybe that you will follow because life is getting very long. And hey, the economy will change anyway. So it's not that you will be able to be active in the same line of work for your entire life, right? So I think it's all about thinking about life in a completely different way that I think can be much more fulfilling than the way in which we are living it now.
1: But one of your core suggestions is that one of the ways we relieve the pressure on national old age pension systems is by making it possible for people to easily work longer. Mm-hmm. And that is swimming upstream from
2: where we are now, no, where absolutely. it becomes
1: very hard.
2: Absolutely. And especially in Europe. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody should work longer you know, and not retire. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing for that. But I'm arguing in favor of giving people the chance of working longer in life if they would like to do that. And you see, most Americans, when they retire, what do they do with the extra time that they have? They watch TV. (laughs) They should be watching radio, right? I mean, listening to the radio, right? (laughs) But they watch TV, which is the worst thing you can do. You become a couch potato. They become isolated or estranged from their social networks. They are bored. They feel lonely. That's why so many of them, I told you earlier, 40% eventually go back to work. Not necessarily because they need the money, but because they they, they just didn't like retirement. Retirement has been completely oversold. Some people love it, but the majority don't. Well,
1: I don't know how they knew in the old days before the internet, but when I turned 50... This wasn't before the Internet. Uh, when I turned 50, automatically, AARP, the magazine, started arriving. And if you read that, it tells you if you're bored in retirement, it's because you didn't plan well enough, not because you're going to live 25 years, almost a third of your life. Exactly. And say you're not going to work, which is crazy, yeah. but they're saying, no, if you just plan better, you won't have to go back to work if you saved well. That mindset
2: that they're offering almost sets you up for failure yes. or a feeling of failure. Yeah, because you start accepting the fact that maybe you're not good enough to continue working or that uh, you need to let the younger people actually work. No, the multi multigenerational revolution is all about you know people working together across generations and companies that have been pioneers at that they found something really important which is that teams work teams that have uh, members who are diverse in terms of age they have higher productivity and they have higher creativity so you know we could have a better economy that is more productive more competitive if we had multiple generations in the same workplace uh, working side by side um, at the other end of the continuum
1: Things aren't so great either. Um, A lot of
2: kids are seriously unhappy. Oh, no, absolutely. Rates of uh, mental illness and suicide among young Americans are way up. But we put too much pressure on young children, right, Uh, at a very early age in that they need to start becoming adults. And they need to make big decisions about the rest of their lives. I think that is completely counterproductive for most of us. Unless you want to become a physician or you want to become an airline pilot. For those people, of course, you know exactly what you need to do. But for most of us, right, uh, the future is going to be about switching careers. It's going to be about being flexible. It's going to be about going back to school to learn new things. Because otherwise, whatever it is that we learn at an early age, is going to become obsolete. Technology is going to make it obsolete. You teach at pen. Mm-hmm. I was a visiting professor at an extremely
1: selective small liberal arts college. So we were meeting some of the same kids. Mm -hmm. And it took me a little while of talking to these kids to realize that they had been jumping through flaming hoops and standing on their head since they were in kindergarten Mm -hmm. or first grade. That the race to get a coveted seat in that school or in the University of Pennsylvania starts when you're really young and they're already talking about resumes yeah. when they're 14 and 15 years old and their parents have them doing enrichment activities all summer and after school. Can we bust that tyranny too?
2: I think we should address the, um, I think the education system from the point of view of uh, reifying this idea that there are some schools or some universities, some colleges that are so much better than the others that you should almost like commit uh, a crime, right? To try to get your children into them. You know, I think there are so many good schools and so many good universities and colleges in the United States that there's a, there's a place for every bright kid. Right. But we, we, we become obsessed with the quality of uh, of the school and the name. Right. The branding that that is, I think, uh, also an obsession that uh, among parents, I always tell parents, Look, don't don't think too much about what you're going to send your kid rather. You know, think about what is it that your kid is going to learn and make sure that they can handle numbers, that they know how to read and how to write. Because those are the skills that they're going to need in the future to learn new things. There's no way they can learn everything at college, right? They're going to have to go back to school multiple times during their lifetimes. But at the same time, parents
1: put on some of that pressure because they're worried. They get feedback from the society about a a place that is... Dog eat dog competitive, where the kids who can't clear those higher and higher hurdles end up as society's refuse. Yeah. Where uh, if you can't compete, you're just out of it. Yeah. And that anxiety, like, you know, either takes the form of, is this kid still going to be in my house when he's 30? Yeah. Or, <laughs> which um, is
2: happening increasingly.
1: <laughs> or more generously, you know, I want my person to be yeah. happy and productive and,
2: yeah. and live a life that makes sense to them. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a problem here, right? I mean, we've gone from raising children successfully to raising successful children. So children have become investment projects. We pour money into, you know, extracurricular activities, good schools, good colleges, hoping that they will be very successful. And of course, parents like to boast about their, children's, their children and their success, then, right? But that's completely the wrong model to follow, I think. There's something fundamentally uh, out of whack there that we need to change.
1: I won't do it from here up on the stage, but if you want to hear my kids, I'll see you in the lobby <laughs> after Professor Gijen signs your book. Um, if we were to break this structure a little bit, loosen the bonds a little bit, would we walk into a college classroom in... 2035 and 2040 and not have it be just kids between 18 and 22, but everybody who wants to be
2: in that school at that time to learn this thing. Right. So we should be seeing 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds. But universities, like the one for which I I work, are the worst at this because we continue to classify people in terms of age, and we have different degree programs for people in each of those uh, age groups. We have you know, undergraduate degrees for people who are at most, uh, you know, 20 or 22 years old. The exception is when you see a 30-year-old, right, uh, getting an undergraduate degree. Then we have master's degree. We have doctorates. We have uh, educational programs for people who have been... You know, who are in their 50s or 60s, we should break those barriers down. Columbia non-traditional University. students. Yeah, exactly. We I, go, I guess that's a term students. you
1: want to get rid of,
2: too. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> what is wrong about a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old learning right? something? You see, in China, and uh, these days uh, China is not the best example right, for many reasons, but in China they have um, 55 million people above the age of 60 studying at university that have they have set up specifically for that age group so it's not my model but at least they have those people attending university right Uh, because they retire relatively early in china Uh, but of course life expectancy is also very long and you want them to do something so they learn how to play the piano and then they become piano teachers or they do something that they like and they go back and uh, and use those skills Uh, but you illustrate in the book when you talk about
1: china that there's a little bit of house of cards there because if you keep those
2: over 60s busy, they're not going to be able to do child care. Yeah. <laughs> for their, for their uh, children, for their own children. But they only have one child, remember, on average, right? So um, it, is a, it is an issue. It is a, certainly an issue. But you see what some companies are doing here in the United States? They, they, they've realized that they need to hire people in their 60s and 70s because there's not enough uh, younger folks now, right? And they have skills and they have experience and so on and so forth. And you know what benefit they're offering them? Grandparental leave <laughs> so that they can take care of their grandchildren. And a lot of people are biting. See, that's, that's great. That's a, that's a progressive employer. I want to work for this company because it's offering grandparents time off to take care of their grandchildren. When I
1: was... Digging down into some of your, your charts and some of your evidence, I was trying to think about the ways that the United States resembles and doesn't resemble other places in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by 2050, most of the world's young people or a crazily disproportionate share of the world's young people are going to be in one place in Africa. Mm-hmm. So they may have a different challenge from the one that China and South Korea are looking at right now, mm-hmm. no?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, in Africa... You know, there's about uh, 300 million babies who are going to be born between now and the end of this decade. So you need to feed them and you need to school them. And it's not obvious how they're going to do that. Uh, And you have to find jobs for them or create jobs for them a little bit further down the road. If those things don't happen, then you're going to have immigration. So that's uh, migration out of Africa, immigration into mostly, you know, Europe, where, as you know, it is a problem already in the sense that Europe doesn't have the capacity uh, to absorb that much migration because it doesn't have enough jobs either. Uh, but um, So Africa, I think, is, a, is an interesting place where better or worse is going to be central to the future of the world. You're from Europe.
1: Mm-hmm. Many of the countries that have benefited beautifully from social welfare programs, from um, being tied together in an economic compact called the EU, uh, they have not responded to this wonderful life that they now live by having more kids. They're all, all the big ones are below replacement rate in their fertility. What's going on there, and what challenges grow out of that demographic anomaly?
2: Well, look, I mean, we're having fewer and fewer babies in the world for a number of reasons. The list is quite long. But there is one of them that is the single most important one. And it's a good trend, which is that women are... um, you know, now have better educational opportunities. When women stay in school, then they graduate from high school and then they go to college and then maybe they get a postgraduate degree, they continue, you know, working and they have a career. What they do is they postpone having their first child. And here in the United States, for example, women now on average have their first child when they're like 29 or 30. So that means at most they will have one or two children. Right. And the more educated they are, the more they postpone it. Oh, no, absolutely. In the United States, we have two kinds of women, like every, everywhere else in the world. Women without a high school degree, and they have on average three or four kids. And then women with a college degree in the United States. And you know how many kids they have on average? One. That is America's one-child policy. You know, the America's one-child policy was to open the universities to women. And once you get a lot of women in university... Because of the mechanism that I explained earlier, they postpone having their first child. So on average, college-educated women in the U.S. and many other countries around the world, they have one child. Is that good? Of course it is. But it has implications, right? The demographic, uh, you know, the, the, the decline in fertility has implications. But of course it's a good thing. We were wasting their talents before and now we're utilizing them. I have two daughters. I'm really happy about that, right? This is a world now where women are getting ahead increasingly, although there is still discrimination. But the point is that this is a fact. This is going on. No matter how much money you throw at young couples, they're not going to have five children like probably our parents did, right? They're going to have one or two. Uh, So it's a very difficult problem to solve because people now have other expectations. They have other goals in life. That has changed in a radical way. And by the way, the same thing happens in Africa. College-educated women in Africa have on average one one child. But most women in Africa don't have a high school degree. So they have five, six, or seven children on average. To go back to the...
1: Very beginning of our conversation, the universe that people carry around between their ears here in the United States includes the idea that people everywhere are having, just having babies. Yeah. Fertility in Mexico oh, yeah. has collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. That's got some good parts to it, some challenging parts to it. But this idea that Mexicans just have tremendous numbers of no children true. hasn't been true in a long time. Yeah. Um, maybe we don't want it to have five. How about two? Yeah. Which would get us closer to replacement
2: level. A lot of countries in the world don't have even an average of two uh, children per woman. Um, And that includes the United States, by the way. We've been below replacement, meaning two children, roughly speaking, per woman in the United States since Nixon was in the White House. You remember those days? That was a long time ago. That was more than half a century ago. We've been below replacement. The only reason the U.S. has a, an expanding population is immigration, which is, I know, a very uh, important topic for you. And it is for me as well. And one that we are still
1: fraught about in this country. Oh, yeah. Instead of saying, well, people want to come here. People aren't clamoring to get into China. Yeah. They're clamoring to get out of China. Yeah. Uh, Yes, our population grows because of immigration. Immigrants tend to have more children than U.S.-born people do, uh, at least for one generation. For one generation, exactly right. And we have benefited from the fact that countries, often countries with very scarce resources, have invested in their citizens, educated them, trained them, and where do they want to go?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, we're very close to the Silicon Valley um, maybe people won't believe me, but the statistic is, is not in the book, but uh, it's just uh, worth mentioning in this context, is that uh, 40% all of, the, all of all of the ventures in Silicon Valley who have gone IPO have at least one founder or co-founder who wasn't born in the United States. Um, some of the uh, you know biggest successes were founded by uh, people who were not born in the United States, including... Uh, companies that now have uh, capitalization in the, in the billions, right, that have reshaped the global economy. Now, immigrants are a positive force, um, especially if you have a rational immigration policy. Right? The problem, of course, is when you don't have an immigration policy. What we have is a patch of immigration policies right now, a patchwork, right? We don't have one single approach. We have all sorts of regulations that have been accumulated over the years. And as you know better than I do, It's a very difficult situation right now. You alluded to it, and I'm glad you did, that there's more
1: than one American woman. Mm -hmm. And the lives that they live in these different parts of the country, in these different parts of the economy, have a tremendous amount to say about life chances and life choices. And as I read some of your... Suggestions, your projection into a future that's created by busting this tyranny of age and generationalism. I wondered whether some of these things weren't sort of upper middle class suggestions that won't necessarily work for working class women.
2: Yeah. Now, this is a very important point. I'm glad that you asked the question. That is to say, is this book just for people who are already successful to make them even more successful, right? And the answer is no. I actually pay a lot of attention in the book um, and in most of my research to groups of people who have been so disadvantaged and that the current model is not serving well. So I would definitely put women in that uh, camp because I don't think the sequential model of life is good for women, right? Because again, it's too inflexible. It's too much of a straitjacket for women. Women need a little bit more flexibility. Then second is teenage mothers. We already talked about them. But it's also foster care children. It's not a great model for first-degree children because they also need another rhythm, you know, to, make, uh, to um, get ahead in life. And also think about people who are recovering addicts. They've also made the wrong decision at some point in their lives, right? They need more flexibility in order to be able to catch up. So we have all of these collectivities. Together, in my calculation, it's about 60 or 70 million Americans right now. And they're not well served by the current system. Not at all. So I want to also help them. It's not just to make very successful people even more successful. You know, most uh, you know, do-it-yourself kind of books are that way, right? No, I want to help also people who have been sidelined by our way of life.
1: Wouldn't it be necessary to take out some of the instinct for punitive policy? Mm-hmm. One of the ways we scare children into remaining in school is by promising to punish them if they don't. One of the ways we design policy to try to keep you on the straight and narrow for instance if you have a drug offense when you're a teenager Mm -hmm. your state won't give you scholarship money to attend the state university it
2: should be the opposite right they should give you more scholarship money
1: (laughs) (laughs) well at least step back from that idea that if you do make a mistake it has to shadow you for the rest of your life yeah
2: yeah, because that has costs for all of us, doesn't it? No, absolutely. In the end, actually, when you count, you know, how much uh, we have, to, how many resources we have to allocate to all of those people who, for one reason or another, don't make progress, right? According to the you know traditional model, it's staggering. We're actually shooting ourselves in the foot. We should change, right? Another great example, by the way, is the government gives you a tax incentive if you save for your children's education, right? or if you save for your retirement, right? 401Ks. But you know what? If you use it for something else, they penalize you, right? Heavily. And for example, I would actually argue, look, if you have saved in your 401K for retirement, they should allow you, the government should also allow you to use that money for education, because maybe that would be better, right? That you spend your money not in retirement doing nothing, but rather that you spend it when you're age 50 or 60, learning a new skill, and then working using that skill. So I think uh, we, we just need to think about all of these issues in a completely different way. That's why the book I think is revolutionary from that point of view. But what people say and what they do, as you know,
1: there's a gap, yeah. and it's a gap that's oh, yeah. sometimes a problem. when. And you mention in the book that when you talk to young workers, they project that they're going to retire at 60. Yeah. Uh, and often even younger yeah yeah.
2: and in the real world they don't well look we all have like a very inaccurate um assessments of what's going to happen to us at certain points in time so for example we systematically overstate how much money we're going to inherit by a wide margin most people you know including myself probably we overstate how much money we're going to inherit we also overstate you know the extent to which we're going to be able to live with uh, a certain amount of money that we saved if we go into retirement most people don't make the right calculation there as well. So we're pretty bad in general about making calculations, especially about the future. But politics
1: has not responded to the way these no.
2: systems yeah. have not, not at all. borne out. Well, they- not at all. But which politician, Ray, is going to tell you that the current system that we have in place for pensions is unsustainable? That person will lose the next election. And the, most, the best established finding in political science, as you know, is that politicians, their goal is to get reelected. That's the thing that motivates them. Right? It's not making people's lives better. And this is a finding from throughout the world. People, uh, people who go into politics, they get elected, they want to get reelected. And they're not going to tell you the truth. The truth right now is that the current system of pensions is unsustainable. If they say that, Nobody above a certain age is gonna vote for them. And those people, by the way, vote uh, at much greater uh, rates uh, than younger people. So no politician is gonna tell you the truth about that. So between their unwillingness to be
1: straight with the people and the disproportionate grip that older people have on policy, on politics, Mm -hmm. on the way the system operates, That's a recipe for stasis, isn't it?
2: Well, it's a recipe for intergenerational conflict. So what I I discuss this in the book, what's important, I think, is to look for opportunities uh, so that, create opportunities so that generations collaborate with one another. That's why I'm in favor of generations going to school together, generations working together. Because I'm hoping that that interaction will help us you know, minimize those intergenerational conflicts, which are very, very clear. It's like, who's going to pay for all of those pensions? Who's going to pay for all of that health care? Well, it's got to be younger workers. This could create a huge problem, intergenerational problem. And we need to act now on that, as opposed to wait until we have a big political fight between the two groups. Well, every four years, a presidential campaign,
1: if somebody's willing to, to dip their toe in the water and say, look, problem with the way Social Security is set up. But don't worry, old
2: people, (laughs) we're going to put the burden on young people. Yeah, that's effectively what's going on. Yeah. In every country in the world that is experiencing population aging, not just here, everywhere, this conflict is happening globally. Right. But politicians will never address it for the very simple reason that then they would lose the vote of people above a certain age.
1: So how do we, how do we, you know, when you've been driving down, I mean, talk about gendered activity, when you've been driving the wrong direction, and you have to finally get on the right road,
2: it takes longer and longer to do it, the further you drive down the wrong road. Reversing course is always very difficult. And you see, I think the ideas in the book are revolutionary, but I don't mean to say that we should stage a revolution tomorrow. What I think we should do is experiment with new arrangements. We should have, again, governments at all levels and companies experiment, for example, with hiring older workers, with having younger workers and older workers, you know, work together. You remember the movie The Intern, Mm -hmm. right? Lovely movie. I recommend it if you haven't seen it. Uh, It's really, really, you know, important for us to find that uh, intergenerational sweet point where we can begin to overcome some of all of these issues. But somebody, is anybody ready to take a haircut on this? No. Well, some companies are doing it. And some governments, I think, around the world are starting to realize that this is a problem. And that they need to take action now. Again, not change everything from one day to the next. But being with pilot programs and with experiments. Look at the social chaos
1: that was unleashed in France oh, when Emmanuel Macron... Try to reform pensions
2: there. Yeah, but you know the French. I'm from Spain, so I cannot tell you anything positive about the French. But the French are always complaining. On average, people in France retire at age 62. That's the effective rate of retirement, whatever the law says, right? 62. What what are they complaining about? Well, they were going to have to work all the way to 65. Yeah, yeah. In in the U.S., it's seven years longer than that. It's, uh, you know, it's... um, 67 68 Well what you're proposing is a
1: massive lift politically. Oh it is. And and a gradual approach would seem to almost be required yeah. but evangelism also is required isn't it? <laughs> the idea that people have to understand why we're all going to embark on this thing. Well, absolutely. To understand what's in
2: it for them. The first thing is to you know, change our mindset about how we live our lives and the fact that we're going to have to be learners throughout our lives and then try to build bridges with other generations. I think that's really, really important. If not, we're going to get into intergenerational warfare very quickly. So so at the end of your scheme,
1: (laughs) a 35-year-old at home won't be a failure. A (laughs) 70-year-old... living with his or her children won't be an imposition and stepping in and out of school and the workforce at different times of life will be natural rather than a disruption to your life
2: Fair? Well, I think you're pushing things too far, but it's a fair, it's a fair, it's not a criticism. I think it's a fair, um, you know, like, um, wake up call. In that um, the name of the game here shouldn't be to try to reach a utopia but rather to take steps that are realistic in this direction right so i'm defining like a a utopia right what i think is really important and i try to do that towards the end of the of the of the book is to take steps in that direction right that i think is what's really interesting but let me just tell you an example today i was uh, having lunch with an alumnus from my my school and he was telling me that his brother started as a ballet dancer not just uh, any kind of ballet dancer. He actually made it into the American Ballet Theater Company in New York City. The finest in the country, right? And you know who is do- what he's doing now, 25, 30 years later? He's the chief investment officer at Stanford University, running the endowment. One of the largest endowments in the world. He never finished high school. He never finished high school. He was admitted at a college, at a... Unusual age as a non-traditional student, right? And then after that, he thrived, okay? And he became, he has become the chief investment officer of no less than Stanford University. He was a ballet dancer. That's the kind of person, right, that we need in this new changing global economy. One, it's an extreme case. You,
1: yes, but, but one that shows that the possibilities of, of what, what could be out there. Yeah. Um, one of the, the structural difficulties is the way we've set up our elementary, secondary, Absolutely. post-secondary education system sort of shuttles you from one into the other. And if a kid says, if a kid has the temerity to say, I'm not ready or I don't want to, boy, we're not very forgiving of that kid. And if that person says at 26
2: now i'm ready yeah
1: we're not very good then either
2: no if the train has left the station and you're still on the platform it's very difficult to recover from that not just in the us everywhere in the world given the system that we have very difficult but you arguably
1: could be learning increasing your potential value Mm -hmm. um, having the world make a little bit more sense to yourself and also being clearer about what you want to learn. Mm -hmm. If you start college at 25 instead of 18. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Because you have more experience. But I think that would also be beneficial to people who are 18. So again, to have people of different ages going through college together. Right. One of the
1: most vivid passages in the book Quotes a woman, says, I'm 69 years old, and that means I am unemployable. I'm just too old. No one takes me seriously for a job, even in things I excelled at. Yeah. That, for
2: an economist, that's just wasted capital, right? It's it's dramatic. It's absolutely dramatic. And uh, poor woman, right, who finds herself in that situation, poor men who find themselves in that situation, we're wasting talent. We're absolutely wasting talent. That's not good for anybody.
1: We just spent a hundred and however many years evolving a system around a 40-hour work week and a five-day work week. And if at 69 you say, you know, if I could work 30 hours a week, I'd happily do it. But not. You don't get to
2: come through the door and dictate your conditions. But that's right? why we need more flexibility also in employment systems. Companies need to think about what would it take to have that 70-year-old who has all of these amazing skills work for my company, right? It could be that it's a grandparental leave, right? Or it could be something else like a shorter work. But are, are managers ready for that not kind yet. of flexibility? No, absolutely not. I mean, go back in time to General Motors or IBM in the 1950s. All of the employees were men, right, at some level. All of the managers were men. And they were supposed to make progress through the hierarchy, right, at certain points in their lives. And otherwise, they would be uh, falling behind, right? But, you know, both of those companies uh, were bankrupt at some point, right? (laughs) They didn't adjust. Um, Now the world is very different. We need a completely different system if we want to be successful. Have you thought about the transition and how long it might take? Well, I think, uh, as you said earlier, it has to be a gradual transition. It will take a long time, but the sooner we start, the better, because the economy keeps on shifting and technology keeps on, you know, giving us surprises like, you know, AI most recently. It's interesting to me,
1: you know, I, I grew up in, as a reporter in the, the Reagan years and the, the Thatcher years and preaching the gospel of market conditions create realities on the ground for enterprises and for workers and the Milton Friedman argument. And there are big forces that you describe in the book that should already be shaping the workplace and the university. And they're not. (laughs) so apparently homo economicus isn't that reliable. He doesn't always, she doesn't always work in her own best interest.
2: But but at some point, I do believe in markets and in competition. And I think companies, perhaps also government agencies, will at some point understand that unless they tap into that talent pool that we were talking about, they're not going to be competitive. So I think in the end, the discipline of competition in the market will get us somewhere. I, I do believe in that. Right? The companies will realize, hey, we're wasting you know, uh, the brains of half of our workers. Because once they turn 40, we no longer train them. We no longer give them opportunities to improve. Right? And by the way, Thatcher and Reagan, two career switchers. Not the best models for this, but uh, Reagan didn't start as a politician, right, as we all know. And Thatcher was a researcher at Oxford University. She actually came up with the way to um, manufacture ice cream so that it would last longer. She was a chemist. Um, That's why they call her the um, Iron Lady of uh, soft surf in Britain, (laughs) right? That's what she was called. So they're not the best examples. I don't agree with many of their policies, but they were career switchers. They reinvented themselves, right? They did.
1: Here, here's an example. A a society-wide game of musical chairs right now. Mm -hmm. Age cohorts are shrinking But universities aren't going out of business and colleges aren't going out of business as fast as age cohorts are shrinking because they just spent the last 30 years investing in getting bigger, building more dorms, more cafeterias, more athletic fields, as if they couldn't see 18 years ago when a certain number of kids were born that now with the entering class of 2023, which is just now heading to school at the end of (laughs) August that there was going
2: to be a problem. And boy, oh boy, is there a problem. Oh, absolutely. A lot of colleges and universities are shutting down programs. And to make matters worse, the U.S. has become less conducive to foreign students coming here, right? Visa issues and all sorts of other things. And so it's not just that the demographics within the United States. It's also that fewer international students are coming to the United States to study. And you know what? When you take a look at the balance of payments of the United States, the number one service industry in terms of exports is financial services. The number two is education. Because when a foreign student comes to the United States, brings in money, we're exporting a service to the rest of the world. They're paying for their education here. Right? Second most important export industry, service industry in the United States is education. And we're killing it because of immigration uh, you know, constraints, because of uh, visa constraints for students. I
1: could talk to you for
2: another three hours, <laughs> but
1: I'm going to ask the audience this question. Absolutely. When some aspects of human life, like child rearing years, are indeed more fit for specific periods of life, what are the boundaries to the ideas of perennialism?
2: It's a great question. And of course, biology matters here. And we cannot have kids, you know, at age uh, 85, uh, or at least not yet. The problem here is that uh, we have taken that as a constraint, especially for women. And that's not fair, right? Uh, So we have to work around that. We have to uh, introduce other systems, right? So that women, for example, can both pursue a career and have a family. Uh, And uh, we should make men like ourselves also, you know, uh, do our fair share at home, because that's the other problem, right? That men don't interrupt their careers for having children, but women frequently have to do so. So there are ways around that. Biology is not destiny, the same way that demography is not destiny. So I'm, of course, conscious of the constraint, and that's why this is a good question. But I think we should look for ways to reduce how binding that constraint is.
1: How can the potential for cross-generational efforts to close opportunity gaps and boost skill skill building counter the decline in youth labor force participation since the 1960s,
2: a trend that's likely to be worsened by automation? Yeah, so automation here, robotics, AI, is the big unknown yet. Uh, as to what uh, you know, effects it will have. I'm convinced that AI will change the way in which we do our jobs more than replace human beings entirely, right? I'm convinced about that, at least for the next 20 or 30 years, right? But, you know, this dynamic or this argument that young people, uh, that if older people stay working, then young people are not going to have as many opportunities, I think that uh, assumes a very static view of the economy. And you see, the economy is always transforming itself. I always tell my students... Right, The jobs that you're going to have in 10 years from now have not yet been invented, right? Um, and, and it's completely true. So we need to adopt, I think, a more dynamic view of things, right? Because things are changing very fast out there. In regard to the workplace,
1: there is systemic bias against older employees. Yeah. What changes do you recommend to encourage employers to hire older employees? Or
2: do you recommend that older employees prepare differently for today's jobs? Well, I think both things will be important. I think the second point is really important because we were uh, uh, earlier referring to that woman age 68 or 69 who just didn't think that she was employable. So we also need to change that mindset. A lot of people, uh, as they approach age 60 or age 70 or even age 80, they think they're no longer good for the labor market. We also need to change that, right? Uh, But I think it all begins with the law and enforcing the law. And there is non-age discrimination in this country, and we should enforce that. But a boss can always say, oh, it wasn't their age. No, absolutely. You know, this other... Oh, and we have Um, unconscious biases also, right? Absolutely. We We need to get rid of all of those things that stand in the way of fully utilizing the talents of people beyond the age of 60 or 70 if they wish to continue working. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't retire. But if people want to continue working, we should give them the opportunity to do so. Do we have to recognize
1: that there are different kinds of jobs? Mm-hmm. Um, if you were somebody who worked with your brains for forty yeah. years, opposed to working with your back for forty years, yeah. you may be more ready to continue working. And you know, one of the the great terrible scourges across the country now is untreated chronic pain in late middle age and elderly men who lifted things up and banged things against things for much of their working lives and now are just in tremendous pain
2: that is not being properly managed. Absolutely. And that's why 120 years ago we invented pensions because pretty much everybody who was in the labor force was performing those kinds of tasks and something had to be done about that. But that's no longer the case. A construction worker can become a quality control um, person, right, at a company. So what we need to do is retrain those people who, because of their physical work, manual work, they'll no longer be able to work in their line of uh, business, right, uh, beyond, let's say, in some cases, age 40. But we should have programs in place to help them, you know, pursue another occupation, to help them reinvent themselves. And it's already happening, right, to a certain extent. But uh, we need to systematize that
1: what will be the impact of remote work on the inter-age cohort knowledge transfer and mentoring? Do you think remote work will persist? That's, that's a great question, given where we are right now, especially having this conversation in San Francisco, where remote work has had a tremendous impact on this downtown. where we're Yeah, sitting.
2: negative impact. I think we're going into a future of hybrid work, and I think that's going to be a godsend for people about the age of 50 or 60 or 70. Because one of the things that people at that age hate the most is commuting. Right? So they may be enjoying the work, but they don't really want to commute. I mean, it's stressful and so on and so on. And they've done it for 30 years. So I think these hybrid ways of working now are going to be particularly good for people above a certain age. That's why I say, you know, contrary to the uh, conventional wisdom, the future right now belongs to people above the age of 60, not to the young. We always say the people, the, the future belongs to the young. I think actually the way things are shifting now, I would strongly argue that the future belongs to people above the age of 60 or 70. But that, um, that skills transfer, that
1: ideas transfer, that you extol in the book isn't it harder to do when everybody's at home and not seeing each other face to face? Oh, absolutely.
2: We, we still don't know to what extent this is going to undermine morale, organizational cultures, all of these things. It's been too short, right? We have uh, only two or three years worth of experience of people massively working uh, from the home. There's going to be a lot of unintended consequences of this. So we need to wait a little bit and then make adjustments. And that's why I was um, you know, extolling, as you say, hybrid work as opposed to pure remote work. I think the future should be hybrid work and by the way it's also very good for the environment
1: because we've got an epidemic of loneliness in this country dangerous loneliness loneliness that encourages people to abuse substances kill themselves and so on absolutely and if you're working longer but also more in a more solitary manner That's not addressing the loneliness
2: problem. That's making it Not at all. Absolutely. That's why I think hybrid work should be the future, not remote work, not 100% remote work. What do you think of the Finland
1: design learning model of education that encourages individual pursuits
2: of interest? So I'm not uh, 100% familiar with uh, the Finnish uh, model, uh, but there are several countries in the world, including Finland, that have been very creative about uh, helping people Access education, access learning, you know, at different stages in life for different reasons, even just for the sake of learning new things, not necessarily to, uh, you know, be employable. And uh, I think that's absolutely the way to go. We are human beings. We love learning. We have we love socializing, as you just argued. We have taken that away from people above a certain age. Learning, we have taken it away from people above the age of 20, really, or 25, because we make it really hard for people above that age to go back into learning mode. That is not what human beings are all about. We have to change that. The ability
1: to continue training and pivot more generally is largely economic. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid only speaking to the haves and not the have-nots? And when carrying massive student debt... Is it harder to take the career and economic risks that lead to greater rewards, pivoting to a new job or going yeah. back to school? What impact does
2: economic burden have on people's ability to follow your guidance? This, this is a great question. And look, I think it's very clear, although I work for an Ivy League institution, that there are non-Ivy League universities and colleges that give you pretty much exactly the same quality education, right? Right than an Ivy League institution at a much lower price. Right. So you're absolutely right. The fact that uh, some people are carrying these inordinate amounts of uh, student debt makes them then want to work and save money and pay down that debt. Right. So this is not working for them. It's not working for the country. We need to change that. We need either more scholarships or we need more people to decide that they shouldn't go into so much debt. That is other cheaper options. Cheaper in the sense of lower price, not uh, you know, lower quality. Uh, in terms of higher education, that will also get them the career that they want. So, this is, this is really important. I'm glad that uh, this person asked that question.
1: It's a great question. And it's really that, the risk aversion part of it, I think, oh, yeah. is critical. Well, absolutely. Of because course. in other countries, you don't have people um, just burdened throughout their well, high, adult lives university, by training. University tremendous is death. free,
2: right? Yeah. But university is also free here if you have a, a good university in your state. It's not free, but it's definitely less uh, expensive than a private Ivy League institution. And people don't realize that uh, you were telling me earlier that, that you went to the University of Virginia. It's a wonderful university. It's actually, uh, you know, at the leading edge in several disciplines in the world. Uh, but most people would say, oh, I'd rather go to an Ivy League if I can afford it, right? Or if I can get in. But then you will end your education. You know, you're 23 years old and you'll have whatever, half a million dollars in debt. Right? Some people too or 100,000 at least. Right. Are there countries or societies today that are
1: moving toward your vision of a post-generational society? And are there others that are far behind?
2: I don't think any country in the world right now is excelling at, uh, you know, um, going down this path that I outlined in the book in terms of the post-generational society. But what we do have, what we do see in every country in the world, is people who are going down that path individuals who, like uh, this ballet dancer that I told you about earlier, uh, have decided to embrace this way of thinking about life. It's just not necessarily, you know, that you follow these stages. So that's where the challenge lies. And you've been asking me about this uh, repeatedly throughout the night, which is throughout the evening, which is how do we make it from point A to point B? That's the real challenge. But we have individuals, brave individuals, who are doing it. But how do we move society as a whole in that direction? That is the problem. That is the challenge.
1: Well, that sends a strong signal when they see other people doing it. It sends a strong signal to individuals about their own decision-making. And if it looks like it's just
2: too big a risk, they won't do it. They won't do it. Absolutely. Because the system right now is biased in that direction. Right? And we were talking about government policies or laws and regulations earlier. We need to change those so that the incentive is for people to take more risks. Absolutely. Do you have a PowerPoint or bullet list
1: of needed federal policy changes that would move us toward a better chance of creating a post-generational society? After all, you're a professor of management at the Wharton School, and the risks of failure uh, with the next presidential elections in 2024 are real.
2: Yeah. Well, um, there is such a list uh, in the last uh, six or seven pages of the book. And it needs to be expanded, I agree. So maybe that's a subject for, for another, another book. Um, but, but here's the important thing. The important thing is, you know, I'm trying with uh, this installment, right, of this idea to help people change their mindset, right? To think in a radically different way about how we live our lives. That's, that's the goal of the book. And I do have details as to what we should be doing. But it's not the primary thrust in the book right? But
1: inevitably politics are going to oh yeah, get involved one way or the other. Oh yeah. And if you've, you met, earlier you mentioned the disincentive for politicians to tell us the truth about the state of play, who is going to talk to us about where things really stand to create the
2: social sentiments that move politicians?? <laughs> Well, I think it has to be people who, you know, think about these issues. They, they do research on them. And I hope that it's also activists. There's a lot of organizations out there, nonprofits, that are trying to put in place systems that I think would move us in this direction. There's a lot of, um, you know, help groups that are trying to, um, you know, make some of those people in their 50s and 60s more employable. Uh, there are nonprofits that are helping Younger people also get the skills that they will need in this new global economy because schools are not doing it right for them. But it's the same as with immigration. Ray. So, you know, the immigration uh, problem really well. I think we fundamentally misunderstand the benefits that we could get from immigration. But talk to the politicians, they're exploiting it. Right. It has become a football in elections. Right. Professor Mauro Gijin is
1: a teacher at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of The Perennials, The Megatrends, Creating a Post-Generational Society. Please thank Professor Gijin. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.